to find in your Bibles the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to take a, a break from uh, 2 Corinthians for this Sunday and next uh, as we celebrate uh, and remember the resurrection of Jesus. And so today, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And of course, we'll be giving attention to the resurrection. So this morning, I want to, us, for us to read the testimony of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up in chapter 19, actually going to begin read in, re- reading in, in verse 29. But um, for my preaching today, I'm going to give uh, primarily attention to the very end of this passage, uh, verses 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39. If you're physically able, if you would, if you'd stand for the reading of God's Word, let's... Uh, Let's hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Beginning in in verse uh, 29, uh, this is what the Word says. Luke chapter 19, verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt Tied on which no one has ever set or yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them, had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said... The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near already on the way down down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and Praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Shadows. I don't mean that in any way a negative sense this morning. I mean that in the sense of uh, images and things that are hearkening to and harbingers of um, things to, to come. Now, admittedly, uh, when you imagine what it must have been like to witness Jesus entering Jerusalem, uh, the and I'm going to use this word, and I don't mean this at all to be sacrilegious or disrespectful, but here's the word. The absurdities and unexpected twist are dramatic. And so here's Jesus, who is the King of kings, worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. In him and through him, all things were created. And so you would expect if he's entering in in a triumphal entry, a king entering to his kingdom, there would be the, the imagery, the, the, um, the vestiges of might and power, and yet we see Jesus 
We see him entering in on a colt, on a donkey, on, on humility. That, that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a contrast there that seems out of sorts. So on the one hand, he rides on a lowly donkey. And yet on the other hand, he is indeed the king of kings, worthy and, and, and victorious, is going to be victorious over sin and death. The other one is you've got Jesus who is worthy of all worship and praise. We will give attention to this at the end of the sermon today. But Jesus says, listen, if every living thing that has breath refuses to give me praise, then the rocks who are not created to praise will break out in eternal glorious praise of me. Why does he say that? Because he's worthy of that. And yet in this, in this, this testimony from Scripture, we see some giving praise to Jesus, and yet we see some absolutely offended that Jesus is receiving the admonition, I mean, the, the admiration, the, the praise, the worship of his, of his disciples. Throughout Scripture, God gives testimony in present things or through present things to things that are to come. This is what we have in this passage. It is a testimony of things that are to come. Now, we have those. One of the, um, one of the, the, the ones that, we, that probably everyone in this room has participated in, that is a shadow of things to come, is a wedding ceremony. Whether you've been in a wedding or whether or been a bride or a groom or whether you've attended a wedding, whether you knew it or not, you participated in a God-instituted moment that is a shadow of what is to come. The Bible speaks about Jesus being the, the groom and the church being the bride. The Bible describes the second coming of Jesus as the, the celebration of the wedding where the, the groom comes and receives his bride unto himself and the glory and the joy of that. When we celebrate weddings this side of heaven, we give a testimony to that coming glorious day. Each of you who are married today give a testimony to the relationship of Christ and his church. But we say of all of those things, they are but shadows because none of your marriages are perfect testimonies to Christ and his church. No wedding ceremony is a perfect analogy of what is it going to be like to celebrate the, the second coming of Jesus. But every time we have a wedding and every husband and wife is a living, breathing testimony, a shadow of something that is to come. This week as we remember the events of, um, that lead up to the cross, we, this Sunday, we remember the triumphal entry, and it indeed is a shadow. It is true of all the things that it, it, it is in its moment, but it also is a shadow of things to come that are even more glorious. And so, out of this passage, I want us to see these three shadows of things to come. Here they are, and then we'll work through them. Number one, Jesus is a conquering king. He is conquering sin and death as he enters Jerusalem, but he will conquer all kings and kingdoms when he returns. Secondly, he is a savior that is bringing peace. Um, he is bringing peace with God, and he delivers to those of us who know Jesus to have the peace of God. And then lastly, he is 
God who is worthy of worship. In this testimony, some worship Jesus. When Jesus returns, everything that has breath will worship Jesus. These are shadows of things to come. Let's begin with a conquering king. I, I see this most clearly in verse 35, 36, 37. Uh, the, 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 the events that are happening here is that they have gathered or, or gotten a, a cult for Jesus to ride on. They have placed um, their cloaks or their coats on the back of the colt, and Jesus has set upon it, and he's riding now toward Jerusalem. And as he rides toward Jerusalem, his disciples, his, those who, who recognize Jesus for who he is, they are, they are shouting the praises of a, a, a conquering king, and they are throwing down in front of him their own cloaks or their coats so that the, even the donkey won't, won't ride upon the dirt and palm branches. This is why we call today Palm Sunday. The conquering king, a couple of things here. Number one, is victorious over enemies. The conquering king, a conquering king is victorious over enemies. The, the events recorded in our passage are often referred to as the triumphal entry, but you may be confused if you're just reading the passage and say, well, wait a minute, I know it's called the triumphal entry, but doesn't Jesus get accused and convicted, tried and convicted, and then, uh, then executed as a, as a criminal? That doesn't sound very triumphant at all, and yet indeed it is. It had, this, this moment has all the elements of a victorious and powerful king returning home to the celebration and praise of his people. The people are welcoming Jesus with shouts of praise. They, they lay palms on the ground and throw their cloaks and coats on the ground for him to walk on. The most uh, similar thing that you and I would have today to this is the red carpet. You know exactly what I mean when somebody says, we're going to roll out the red carpet for you. It's, it's the imagery of a VIP or royalty or something like that where we roll out red carpet so that as they enter, their feet don't touch regular ground. You don't do that for regular folks. You do it for a king, a prince, a president, or somebody who is very important. Jesus is a conquering king, but not in this moment as many of the people who welcomed him may have imagined. The crowd excitedly welcomed him because they had hoped that he was a king. And, and, and I think some maybe have recognized who he was, but I think many hoped that he would be a king like the kings of men. But Jesus was not coming to Jerusalem to topple Rome. He was coming to destroy death. In Romans chapter 6, it says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says, and, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought uh, the immortality to light uh, and brought life and immortality to life to light through the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says with great joy, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Friends, he is not arriving to respond to political grievances, but he is coming to satisfy the wrath of God. 
Romans 5 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He's not coming to comfort us with platitudes. He is coming to confront our sin on the cross with his own body and his own blood. Luke chapter 22 says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Friends, Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem, is a victorious king. He was coming to wage war on the curse of sin and death, and indeed, he would be victorious. He's also coming to set captives free. Victorious kings impose their will and their authority. Those who are citizens of the king's kingdom welcome his arrival. And those who are enemies of the king loathe his presence. The Bible teaches that since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, all have been under the curse and the slavery of sin. John chapter 8, Jesus says, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus enters Jerusalem with the intention and purpose of ending the power of sin to enslave. He's coming with the purpose to set the captives who've been enslaved to sin to set them free. He declared that the, prophet, that the prophetic promise of God through Isaiah, who, had, who had, had been fulfilled early in his ministry when he went to the synagogue and read, he read from Isaiah and he said these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then when he closed the scroll, when he, when, he, when he set it back aside, he looked up at those who were gathered and he said, Today this word has been fulfilled. He was the one who fulfilled that prophetic word. The work of the cross was a work of freedom. In the, at the cross, Jesus broke the chains of sin. Amen. Jesus settled the debt. He removed the claim. He set the captives free. Writing to the Colossians, Paul said, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In John chapter 8, uh, they, they um, oh, um, questioning Jesus, they said, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will, be, you will become free? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But here's what it goes on to say. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Friends, death is defeated and sinners are set free. That's why we say 
Hallelujah. That's why we say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As they throw their cloaks down, as they put the, the palm branches on the ground, even the, the oddity of Jesus entering with, the, 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 with what, what, what should be like a conquering king on a mighty horse, he comes in on a humble um, uh, colt. He is indeed a conquering king, conquering sin, conquering death. He is indeed the one who sets the captive free, setting us free from the slavery of sin. And it, and, it, and it beckons us to the day when he will return again, no longer on a colt, but indeed on a mighty horse, coming to set us free for eternity, coming to establish his kingdom for eternity, coming once and for all as the victorious king for the glory of his name forever and ever and ever. He is a conquering king. And he's a savior who brings peace. In the first part of verse 38, as his disciples welcome him and worship him and celebrate him, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That word peace shows up every time Jesus shows up. In other places in Scripture, he's called the Prince of Peace. Now, there's two ways that I think we can understand the peace that Jesus brings. The first, and the most important, you don't get the second without the first, is this. Jesus provides to you the opportunity to be at peace with God. As our culture has grown more secular, and as a result, less knowledgeable of God's Word, there is less and less understanding of the holiness of God. And as a result, the lack of knowledge or understanding of the holiness of God, it doesn't diminish God's holiness, but what it does do is it makes us, or at least our cultural, unaware and less fearful of the holiness of God. The lack of knowledge of God's holiness um, allows men to foolishly be unafraid of the wrath of God. I, you ought to sometime, you can Google it and you can find the full text of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You may have read it in high school, but probably only read a portion. You need to read the whole thing. The majority of that sermon is, is illustrations of how precarious you are to falling into the fullness of God's wrath being poured out of, upon you. And, and, and the whole idea behind the sermon is, dear sinner who is in such a dangerous position, turn now to the glory and grace of Jesus and be saved. Because the most dangerous place to be is to be under the wrath of God and not know it. Because you whistle your way to, on to, to, toward hell. It is a dangerous and precarious place. You are right now, if you don't know Jesus, one heartbeat. One slip of the wheel as you drive. One momentary lapse of judgment away from eternity. And dear friends, that is a, a dangerous place to be indeed. The wrath of God, friends, is a terrible, terrible thing. The total separation from God, the unmitigated fury of God, the righteous punishment of God poured out upon you. If you don't know Jesus, listen to me carefully. 
It is not that God will judge you. You're already under the judgment of God. You see, the Bible says everyone was born under the wrath of God. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6 tells us that the wages or the cost of sin is death, to be separated from God for all of eternity. It is only through the redemptive work of Jesus uh, that God's wrath is satisfied. John 3 tells us whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. See, it's not that you're going to receive the wrath of God. You're already under the wrath of God. Romans 5 tells us that since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Friends, to be under the wrath of God is by definition, listen to me carefully, to be under the wrath of God by definition means that you are not at peace with God. I can't tell you how many times I've had the, 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 a similar conversation. It goes like this. I'm sharing the gospel with someone, and I, I just ask them. I'll say, brother or, or friend, if you were to stand before God today and, he, and his righteous judgment were to come upon you, what would you say for yourself? And they'll give me some answer like this. They'll say, well, I'm hoping that it'll just work out. I'm hoping that my, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. I'm hoping that he's going to count me as a good person. Now, friends, listen to me. If you're relying on your own effort to be justified by a holy God, you're relying on something that will not survive God's judgment. You are under the wrath of God. And to be under the wrath of God is not to be at peace with God. Now, you might be saying, well, I'm hoping God's going to just work it out. And you, in your mind, you might think, you might be imagining God as kind of like a grandfather. And I don't know how your granddads were. Mine was, I could, I could do something terrible and my granddad would say, well, he didn't mean it. Right? My dad did not spare the rod. Amen. But my granddad, I guess he had done all the discipline he wanted to do on my father. And so when it came to me, I could do no wrong. Some of us are foolishly imagining God as a grandfather who never punishes. Friends, if you don't know Jesus today and you're not, you've, not, you've not trusted in faith under Jesus, you might think you're okay with God, but he is not okay with you. You're under his full wrath. So don't foolishly believe that you're okay with God because of some justification you have, you have constructed or contrived. Either you are right with God through the saving blood of Jesus or you're under the wrath of God because of your sin. Those are the only two options. Either you are, uh, you're, you're right with God through the saving blood of Jesus or you are under the wrath of God because of your sin. So peace with God only comes through the cross of Jesus. By going to the cross, by satisfying the wrath of God, only through his blood, only through his death is the, is the wrath of God satisfied and the opportunity for you to be at peace with God. That's why Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when you are made at peace with God, you then can enjoy the peace of God. 
Friends, we live in some troubled times. Now, I, I, I struggle sometimes saying that because I imagine that maybe every generation thinks that their moment is the worst moment. And that may be true, but this is our moment, right? We're not living in other generations. We're, we're living now. And right now, there's some troubling things on the horizon. The, the moral fiber of our culture is fraying and tearing apart. You see it. I mean, you, you see it locally, and certainly you see it nationally. Political leaders today seem to be more and more willing to advance their personal agenda, even at the cost of the greater good of those that they lead. We, we seem to be heading into troubling financial times when you, when you, when you, when you see what's happening out there. The, the moral rebellion, the absolute unmitigated moral rebellion is astonishing today. Biblical orthodoxy, I, we used to say is on decline. I, I'm not even sure that's the right word to use anymore. You'd have to, you'd have to go to like preschool, Sunday school for most people just to, 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 to get some basic theology in their life today. And it's no wonder then that there's a rising number today of those that are struggling with anxiety. Just to uh, as preparing for the sermon, I just did some Google searching about anxiety and the, and the levels, and you can find your own stats, but, but pretty quickly I found these. One in five adults today live with mental health issues. 20% of all primary care visits today include at least one mental health indication. The rise in anxiety, depression, and other mental issues is impossible to ignore. Now, the there's a lot of discussion about why, what's the reason, what's the causality, and, and, the, and those sort of things. But what's correlation and what's causality, all those questions. But you, can't, you at least cannot ignore the fact that this generation, that our present day, is more fearful, more afraid, more anxious, more worried, more depressed than previous generations who actually knew some more dramatic things like world war and starvation and those sort of things. And yet we are more depressed and anxious. I think we would be wise to consider why Paul was able to write to the Corinthians whose lives were being, uh, whose lives and well-being were being constantly threatened by persecution. So when Paul wrote these words to the Corinthian church, they weren't living in peaceful days. At least it wasn't peaceful for being a Christian. And he, and he wrote to them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And he said, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, in that passage, Paul is not instructing the church to ignore the danger that they were in to pretend that they were not afraid of what might befall them. Uh, and certainly, he is not calling them to put on a happy face to cover their anxieties. If that's what you think that passage is about, you have missed it. Paul's instruction to rejoice and not be anxious rests on the last phrase of verse 4, the Lord is at hand, in verse 7. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Having the peace of God does not mean that you don't have troubles in this world. In fact, Paul was writing to people who had trouble, and the the reality of it is that they were going to have trouble for the rest of their days. The peace of God does not mean that you have plenty of money in your bank account, that your kids are doing perfect in school, that the government is moving in a way that you like, that that the weather is always wonderful, and and that your health is perfect, and and that all those things are great, and, and you can just put on Facebook, my life is great, wish yours was like mine. No. Having the peace of God means that you trust that everything is in the sovereign omnipotent hand of God. That's different. That means that even if all the world is falling apart, you can be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God who is sovereign over all things and powerful over all things. The worst thing this side of heaven that can be done to you is bodily harm and death. But Jesus commanded us not even to fear those who threaten to kill us. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Now, why would he say that? Because the worst thing they can do this out of heaven is harm your body and kill you. But they have no authority over your eternity. Those who have the peace of God have confidence that their soul is safe and their their eternity is secure. And friends, if you have confidence that your soul is safe and your eternity is secure, even if the worst thing this side of heaven befalls you, you can be anxious about nothing but but in everything, by in prayer and supplication, make your request be known to God because he has got it in his hand. Jesus entered Jerusalem to go to the cross to provide worried and anxious sinners peace with God so that they may have also have the peace of God. Friends, this side of heaven, we've got all kinds of things that make us worried and concerned. Jesus went to the cross in this moment, going to the cross to bring peace. Yes, there was peace that was brought at the cross But I'm telling you, when he returns, there'll be a greater peace that we know. We now, through the cross, have the peace with God. And we are knowing the peace of God. And that peace of God will be perfectly experienced in the glory of heaven. One last thing. And that Jesus is a a God who is worthy of worship. Look again there in verse 38, just the second half of that. They say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, the Pharisees who were also there, we assume they weren't shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They saw this as sacrilegious, as um, as inappropriate. They rebuke. In fact, they they actually invite, they tell Jesus he ought to rebuke. And we'll, we'll learn something from how he responds in this passage. So, we begin with, with an understanding that Jesus is worthy of worship now. 
So one of the elements of foreshadowing is that everything is present, but not everything is fully understood or developed. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem, his disciples are shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing their cloaks down. They're throwing their palm branches down. They're clearly worshiping Jesus. They're quoting Psalm 118 that says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. A messianic passage. And we know that their worship of Jesus is correct because of the way Jesus affirms them to the Pharisees. So the people are praising him as the promised Messiah. The Pharisees in the crowd understand this. And, and, and they, they tell Jesus, you need to make them stop. Now, if indeed they were being sacrilegious, and if indeed they were being blasphemous, Jesus would have said to his disciples, stop. But Jesus not only received their praise, but he said that even if every person on earth refused to worship him, that creation itself would break forth in praise. So look in verse 40. Jesus said, I tell you, this is to the Pharisees, I tell you, if these, my worshipers, my disciples, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And this is the point. The point that Jesus is making is that he is worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship right now. To be clear, this does not mean that we should worship. And it doesn't mean that it is recommended that we worship. It doesn't mean that he needs our worship. It means that he is worthy of worship and is the rightful object of worship. It's not that we should worship. It's that all of creation must worship. It's not that it's recommended to worship. It's that everyone will worship at the, at the call of his name when he returns. We will worship Jesus because he is the only rightful object of our worship. Now, now notice this. In the created order, rocks were not created to worship God. God didn't make the rocks in his infinite, perfect will to worship himself. You were made to worship the Lord. Friends, you, every man and woman and boy and girl, you were made to worship God. It's your purpose. It is your main created purpose to worship God. But if those who were created to worship do not, then Jesus says, then the rocks, the trees, the mountains, the oceans will rise up in holy worship to the one who's worthy. Now, why does he say that? He says that because, because if the ones who were created to do it won't do it, then creation cannot be stopped to do it because he's worthy of it. It is the right and glorious and perfect thing for him to receive all glory and worship and praise. Friends, it is righteous right now and holy right now to worship Jesus. We see in this triumphal entry, oh, it's not perfect, it's not complete. There are some who are and there are some who are not. But we see in this moment the rightful worship of Jesus. He is God worthy of worship presently. And friends, he is God who is worthy of worship forever. When you think about heaven, 
Understand that in heaven it will be the glorious labor of our eternity to worship Jesus forever and ever and ever. When John was given the revelation that gave him a glimpse into eternity, he, he saw a little bit of the eternal worship of Jesus. In Revelation 4, it says, The 24 elders fell down before him who was seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. In Revelation 5, it says, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Bible tells us that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. You see, in eternity, everything worships Jesus. So presently, we have a shadow of what is to come. The worship of the present is a shadow of what is to come in eternity. It's not perfect, it's not complete, but it gives a glimpse of what it will be like in that glorious day. Some of our family's most treasured and precious photos that we have captured over the years are pictures of our children when they were pretending to be something that they saw adults doing. You've got probably some of these photos in your own photo albums. So the photos captured, just to, so you have an imagination here, the photos captured a kid imitating as best they could in the clothes that they put on, in the accessories they had in their hands, and in the actions that they did, something or that they had witnessed adults doing or that they had seen adults doing. So, I flipped through our family album, and, and here are some of the ones I found. I really wanted to show you the photos, but because we still have kids living in the house, I figured it was too embarrassing, but I told them, as soon as y'all are out, I'm going to show it all, okay? So I'll tell the story later when they're grown and out of the house, and I'll show you what I mean. So one of the, one of the photos I have was a, the best way I can describe it is a cowboy explorer. He had on a cowboy hat. He had on binoculars. And he had a Nerf pistol stuck in his pants. He was ready for action. One of them was a doctor in scrubs with a plastic stethoscope around their neck. This is the only one you'll know exactly who I'm speaking of. One was a bride dressed up in white ready for her wedding day. Lots of pictures of little athletes dressed in their uniform, ready to play, but their hat was too big. Their pants were way too baggy. Their mom had cinched it up with a belt, so it was like tight around their waist and then loose everywhere else. There was a sharpshooter. I don't know if he was shooting a BB gun or what, but he was wearing uh, ear protection, real ear protection, and it literally encased the entirety of his head. There was another one of a, a pilot taking the controls of an airplane. They had on the actual pilot's captain's hat and it literally swallowed their head. You could see their little nose under the, under the hat. Now in every one of these photos, if you were to see it, you would instantly know exactly what they were attempting to emulate. There's no mystery there. And if, you, if I were to 
If I were to have shown you the photos today, you probably would have laughed. But if you laughed when I showed you the photos, you would not have been laughing at my children in any sense of derision. You would have been laughing at the sweetness, at the adorableness of a child trying to pretend to be an adult. That's what makes these photos so adorable and precious. Now, in the moment, even if the kids were totally committed and sincere in their effort uh, and, and trying to do whatever it is they saw adults doing, you and I both knew when they did it, and that's why we took the picture of it, is that they were far from the real thing. They were doing the actions. Sometimes they even held the actual implements and even put on the actual uniforms and, and clothing, but they were in those moments only shadows of the real thing. Now, we hang on to these photos because sometimes the playtime of childhood is a harbinger of what will come in adulthood. So if in adulthood one of our kids becomes a cowboy explorer, you know we're going to pull out that picture. If one of them becomes a, a physician or, a, or an athlete or, or, or whatever, that we have a, a photo of them pretending to be as a child, we're going to bring those things out and a celebration of, oh, look who you have developed into, even as we saw the shadow of it early in your life. The picture of them displaying the shadow of what may be becomes all the more precious in the light of what is. Friends, as we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, we recognize that these events point us to what will be. Jesus is coming again. Praise God, Jesus is coming again. There is coming a second triumphal entry. Having defeated sin and death on the cross, he will return as king of kings. Having satisfied the wrath of God on the cross, he, when he comes again, will welcome the saints into the presence of God. Having received the worship of a few as he walked toward the cross, he will soon receive the worship of everything that has breath. So today, so we give attention to the shadow of what is to come. Today, see Jesus, friends, for who he is. Today, while you have the opportunity, believe in faith and be saved from your sin and rescued from the wrath of God. Today, receive through Jesus peace with God and know the peace of God.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.